Hey, Bankless Nation, welcome to another State of the Nation. Guess what, David? It's Merge Week. It's finally here. We're talking to Justin Drake on Merge Week, and we're talking about some bad ETH takes. 15 bad ETH takes. We're going to give them to you. It was probably a year ago, a year and a half ago, when Justin Drake dropped the legendary Ultrasound ETH episode, Ultrasound Money episode on Bankless. And since that time, I guess headed into this monumentous week uh, of the merge, there have been a lot of takes about that episode. Some good takes, some not so good takes. And I think Justin is here to um, talk about some of the bad takes and clear up some misconceptions about ultrasound money. What are we in store for today, David? Yeah, it seems to be impossible for people outside of the Ethereum ecosystem to produce good takes about the Ethereum ecosystem. Uh, and I'll say that knowing full knowingly that I'm biased towards the Ethereum ecosystem, but there's just some real low-hanging low fruit out there, as well as also some good nuanced arguments about some classic bad ETH takes. So some conversations that we're going to be going to, going to get into is like the rich get richer, which is a very common take you hear about proof of stake. So we're going to talk about that. Also, Ethereum is trying to do everything all at once, and it's also being bad because it's having to, uh, you know, split its attention into so many different categories, uh, as well as like unpredictable supply, deflation, bad. It's a security, etc., etc., etc. Some very common takes that you've heard around the cryptosphere. We're gonna take them one by one and go through 15 of the baddest ETH takes that you've ever heard. All right, get ready for the countdown. Uh, Justin Drake dropping some bad ETH takes. I thought this was impossible, <laughs> but I guess he's refuting them. All right, David, I want to ask you the question I always ask at the beginning of these episodes. What is the state of the nation today? Ryan, the state of the nation is none other than merging, because how else, what <laughs> other state would it be? We are merging this week uh, in the bankless world, in the Ethereum world. Uh, I don't feel like that needs any explanation. Okay, well, give me the latest uh, date and time, because I think last roll-up when we checked in, mm -hmm. we thought it would be Thursday morning. Right. I'm now hearing like, Friday evening? No, or no early Wednesday Thursday evening. Thursday morning. Sorry, not Friday. My right. God. Wednesday evening. Right. Late mm -hmm. or possibly into like the wee hours of Thursday morning, like 12 a.m., 1 a.m. Right. Okay. That's the most updated time, time frame that we have so far. Yeah. 11 p.m. Wednesday tomorrow. So that puts us at 36-ish hours, 34-ish hours from the time of recording. Uh, yeah. So that's going to be the new time. So it's going to be late. Ultrasound Money is now saying one day, nine hours, 47 minutes, and 8,691 blocks is the exact time that Ultrasound Money is predicting. rewrite that rent song. <laughs> All right, guys. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. We will be right back with our episode, clearing up some misconception, 15 bad ETH takes with Justin Drake. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. Hey, Bankless Nation, we are back with Justin Drake talking about 15 bad ETH takes that he is going to refute and talk about specifically around ultrasound money. Justin Drake does not need an introduction on Bankless. Of course, he's been here more than a few times, uh, but he is a researcher at the Ethereum Foundation. He is a blazing a trail through the world of crypto economics, and it's great to have you back, Justin. Welcome. Thanks for having me again. It's Merch Week. Uh, how are you feeling? about uh, what's gonna happen this week. Uh, and you know, for those that maybe aren't as in tune, why is, why is the Ethereum merge such a big deal in your eyes? Right, so I'm feeling extremely excited, but at the same time, a little powerless because you know, it's now in the hands pretty much of the devs and the operators. 
the staking operators. So, um, you know, a little anxious, you know, I'm sure there will be some, you know, some bugs, but the good news is that we've really, um, you know, hedged our bets with client diversity. So even if one client, even if two clients, even if three clients, even if four clients go down, uh, it's probably okay. Uh, and you know these bugs will be will be fixed and uh, and, and and we'll have a, a, a smooth merge. You know, for me, the su a successful merge means uh, finality uh, as soon as possible. It's possible that the the uh, participation rate will drop. You know, it might drop to 95, 90. We'll see uh, percent, but that's okay so long as it stays above 66 percent. So, in terms of uh, why the merge is you know amazing, is that um, you know, it's basically updating the core consensus engine within Ethereum. If you think of Ethereum as a car, like the, the, the engine's the most, one of the most important components and we're making a massive upgrade here. Um, but uh, it turns out that as a second order effect, we're also doing a massive upgrade to Ether, uh, the asset, the native money of Ethereum. And oftentimes, you know, we talk about uh, money Legos, right? We talk about Uniswap being a money Lego, Ave, Maker, etc. But we forget about Ether itself. Ether is the primordial money Lego. It's the meta money Lego. Even you know non-financial applications like ENS use Ether to make ENS possible. Um, and I think Ether, the asset, is about to get a, a massive upgrade here with the merge. So I know that that analogy that you used, in fact, a year and a half ago, used that in our original ultrasound money episode of um, Ethereum really getting its engine swapped out. This you know old combustion uh, engine that was inefficient, didn't work very well, being replaced for like a a battery uh, powered engine. You know something like Elon Musk would would dream up. Um, but the story, the Ethereum merge and Ether's ultrasound money has not yet broken into mainstream. So, of course, bankless listeners listening to this now, you're familiar with it because David and I, we talk about it a lot. You Can't know what stop. the merge is. Yeah. Um, but Justin, when we were talking during the break just now, um, you had just given us a rundown of your recent interview circuit and a whole bunch of major mainstream uh, media outlets are now maybe putting some attention on the merge. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and, and what you're seeing from your vantage point? Yeah, for sure. So I guess in the last few weeks, um, I've been you know overwhelmed by the media. They really want my attention. And uh, I've been interviewed by many large publications, you know, Wired, Forbes, I have the list here, uh, The Economist, Time Magazine, BBC, Politico, um, and yeah, I'd say that the merge is definitely not priced in, in the sense that uh, we're going to have, you know, a much bigger audience now, you know, looking at Ether and, and starting to appreciate it. But I think another reason why it's not priced in is that the, the questions that are being asked and the articles that are being written are still so, so, you know, early. Um, you know, I think there's a big focus on the energy reduction. That's something that mainstream can understand. But there's, you know, more subtle stuff going on. Um, one of the uh, things that the press is starting to understand is the massive issuance reduction, you know, 10x issuance reduction. I'd say that's the next easiest thing to understand after the reduction in electricity consumption. Um, but, you know, going all the way to ultrasound money meme, that's just way too far. You know, I've been trying to 
plant some seeds with these reporters, you know, mentioning ultrasound money, uh, but it, it, it's still too early. Um, and then when we talk about security, you know, the fact that this is a massive security upgrade from the perspective of economic security, the amount of dollars that you need to attack the system, as well as 51% attack recovery with slashing, that's, you know, way over their head. Uh, despite the fact that security is the, the product that Ethereum is delivering, it's secure block space. So it's, you know, the most important property, arguably, and the one that's the least appreciated by the mainstream. I'm just imagining that meme, uh, a Justin Drake meme, where you know he, he's being asked by mainstream media about how Ethereum is reducing its energy footprint by 99.9%, and Justin Drake is in the corner just saying, they don't know about ultrasound money. <laughs> they don't know about how secure Ethereum is going to be. So feel a little bit like that? Exactly, yes. <laughs> well, this is uh, probably a lead into the conversation that we want to have today, which is bad takes about ether bad takes about ethereum and i know a lot of these reporters are trying to do their best they're trying to report on ethereum to the best of their ability and you know granted crypto is hard especially when you get down to the relationship between something like ultrasound money and the security of ethereum but i think this episode is going to be a little bit for those the crypto natives the people that have been passing ideas back and forth giving out takes left and right on crypto twitter or whatever medium they're, they're on about the various takes that there are about Ethereum and about Ether, the asset, and we're gonna get your get you to weigh in on 15 of them. Justin, you ready? Sounds good. The first one we want to talk about uh, is the merge will never happen. Justin, what would you say <laughs> to this very frequent take that you hear being put out on crypto Twitter that the merge will never happen? Wow, okay, so the good news is that there's there's two types of takes. There's what I call falsifiable and non-falsifiable non takes. Now, the, the non-falsifiable takes are those that kind of linger on and on and on because it's very, very hard to, to falsify them. But the, the specific take that you mentioned, the good news about it is that hopefully, you know, within the next 36 hours, let's say, we're going to be able to, to falsify that. You know, we're going to be able to have a, a clear event that we can point to and say, hey, you were wrong. Um, so unless things go wrong, which I don't want to say is not possible because there is a possibility, you know, if I were to try and estimate it, I'd say there's at least a 1% chance that things, you know, go wrong. But overwhelmingly, like this should go smoothly. Um, so the merge will happen. It will happen within the next few hours and everyone with that take will be, uh, you know, proven wrong. Here's, uh, here's another take that I think is related, which is um, Ethereum, the full Ethereum roadmap and the vision for Ethereum will never ship. It will never ship. So the subtext here is Ethereum is always full of promises ever since the world computer, but it won't actually ship anything meaningful. What would you say about that take? Mm, interesting. Um, so I think there's, there's, there's a couple of things here. Like one is kind of a misunderstanding of what Ethereum is. Um, and to me, Ethereum is the settlement layer for the internet of value. You know, it's a very simple, well-defined thing, but people have been conflating Ethereum with the things that are built on top of Ethereum, right? And we've had DAOs, we've had ICOs, we've had DeFi, NFTs, and some of these, these things have, have failed, or well, at least are no longer in vogue. 
So for example, ICOs, you know, that was a thing back in 2017, is no longer a thing. And so if you thought that Ethereum was ICOs, then arguably, you know, it hasn't fulfilled its mission. But that's not its mission. We don't want to conflate Ethereum being the settlement layer for the intent of value with its applications. Another thing that uh, you know, some people do is kind of conflate Ethereum and its mission with the technology. So people will say, for example, that Ethereum is a consensus layer, or Ethereum is an execution layer, or a data availability layer. But it's actually these consensus, execution, data availability, these are components of Ethereum. It's not Ethereum itself, um, just like the engine, the wheels, and the chassis are, are components. And um, it's, it's even though like the components are not fully mature, right? For example, the data availability layer is the, 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 the main one that we haven't really shipped yet. Um, it's, we have a, a credible roadmap. Is this idea that, um, you know, we have done a lot of research we have proven to the community that we are able to do upgrades, that we are able to do hard forks. And it's okay for visionaries, for entrepreneurs to come in and start building today, even though the technology is not fully mature. Um, and th this is something that we, that we experience, um, you know, around uh, crypto kitties, right? There was this uh, argument being said that it's not worth for me to invest time building on Ethereum, because if I were to have a successful application, it would just use up all the bandwidth and we couldn't scale. But I think at this point in time, we're in a very, very different place where we have not only the long-term vision and the goal set, but if we have all the research done, specced out, all the details there, we have proof of concept and we have this willingness from the community to want to become a settlement layer for the incentive of value. And so, you know, that's, you know, again, another falsifiable claim that I hope will be falsified, uh, you know, uh, uh, over the years. And one of the things that we've learned to do is to try and move incrementally, right? And do like these small upgrades. And so actually the merge is the smallest and simplest upgrade that, that we could have designed. You know, we had no withdrawals, we didn't clean up, you know, the if one voting, um, and we did all sorts of other cleanups. We just did the simplest thing we could do. And I think for scalability is going to be a similar idea where we're going to release proto dank sharding, which is the simplest thing we could think of. And then full dank sharding will come, will come when, it, when, when it's ready. And another thing I guess worth mentioning is that nowadays it's not just the researchers and the devs pushing forward. It's, hundreds of engineers outside of, 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 that, of that small team of 100 people that are now you know, pushing the, the execution layer to its limits via the rollups. And on that note, since we are 36 away from the merge, you know, proof of stake has always been one of the things that the Ethereum will never complete its roadmap uh, vision, uh, the, these people that critique this uh, outcome of Ethereum will, will always say like proof of stake will never ship. And so really the burden of proof at this point goes on to the people that say that Ethereum won't ship because Ethereum has this history of shipping. Uh, so to tie that one off um, and moving on to the next one, uh, take number three, bad take number three is that Ethereum tries to be everything all at once. 
and therefore it suffers from being able to be optimized to doing anything at all. So Justin, what, what would you say to the critiquers that say Ethereum is trying to do too many things? Right. So there's this, there, I guess there's two ways to interpret that, that bad take. The first one is, as I mentioned, kind of conflating Ether, sorry, Ethereum with the applications built on top of it. Right. People could say it's trying to do too many things. It's trying to do NFTs, it's trying to do DeFi and, and ICOs and DAOs. But that's like saying the Internet's trying to do too many things. No, the Internet's trying to do one single thing, which is to be the communication layer for the digital world. And we're trying to do one single thing, which is to be the settlement layer for the Internet of Value. Um, the other way to interpret this, 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 this bad take is that people claim that Ethereum is simultaneously trying to be a smart contracts platform and it's trying to be good money with, with Ether, the asset. Um, and that if it needs to be successful at one of them, it, it really needs to focus and only do one of these things. Um, you know, be, be more like Bitcoin, for example, if you want to do just money. Um, but my, uh, my claim is that it's actually the exact opposite. Like if you want to be successful at either, you need to do both at the same time. And the reason that being good at money is critical to being good at, uh, at smart contracts, at a settlement layer for the intent of value is for two reasons. One is because we need so-called economic security. We need to have trillions and trillions of dollars of economic security so that it's impossible even for the largest nation states in the world to go attack 51% attack Ethereum. And the only way to get there is to have monetary premium. Um, and the only way to get monetary premium is to be, or at least large amounts of monetary premium is to be the, 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 the best money. Another reason that we need to be money is because Ether, the, 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 the asset, is also used as economic bandwidth, right? It's this money Lego in the context of, 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 of DeFi. Um, and, uh, you know, pe pe people have been, um, you know, talking about these, these money Legos, you know, like, did I already say that, like Uniswap? Uh, Ave and, and Maker, but really Ether is this is this you know primordial uh, building block, the oldest one, the most important one, the largest one, the most flexible, the most composable, the most pristine, etc. Um, and if we are going to be successful at, at building the Internet of Value, we do need uh, that uh, that 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 component. Um, what was the the? Uh, sorry, I, I lost my train of thought there. I think that I think that answers it. And by the way, with uh, with that question, you also answered you know number four because we were going to ask you specifically about whether ether the asset can be both um, you know optimized as a as a currency for a smart contract platform and also be a good money. And your answer is not only can it be both, it needs to be both. Uh, for right. for economic security reasons, um, I think that brings us to to number five. Oh, d did you have something you wanted to add, Justin? Yeah, I wanted to actually give you the flip side, which is okay. that if you want to be successful at money, you need to be successful at smart contracts, and in a way, that's the one of the bare cases for for, for Bitcoin. And um, the 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 reason is that um, with with money, 
there is this competition for monetary premium. There's this idea that only the best assets, the most outstanding assets will be worthy of this you know, monetary premium, which is in a way a, a societal illusion. We all need to come to consensus on something. And the best way to come to consensus of something is to create these shelling points um, about the asset in, in ways that the asset can, can, can be outstanding. And it, it, it turns out that we've, we've discovered a way to make an asset outstanding in the context of blockchains through income, through the burn. And if you, your blockchain does not provide utility, transactional utility, there will be very little burn. And so in a way, Bitcoin, by focusing on just money, and by focusing on the non-transactional aspects of money, it's sacrificing a huge amount of income, which could have gone towards, you know, if uh, towards it, it, its native money. And it's for, for, for Bitcoin specifically, it's even worse because over the long term, there is no issuance. And so not only is it sacrificing, you know, income for, for the asset, but it's also jeopardizing it, it, its security. You know, on, on, on Ethereum, what the, the, the strategy that we've taken is always prioritize security. So we have this continuous tail issuance, which guarantees security, and then all the economic activity and all the income that comes through it is additive. Um, and and it's, instead of being funneled to pay for security, it's funneled uh, towards the assets and to, towards making it a better money. So it sounds like you really believe that the the utility of the block space in general, the, the smart contract functionality is is necessary because it increases the uh, the demand for highly useful uh, and highly secure block space. And that's something that if you're not a smart contract platform, you actually don't have. Um, but that but that gets us, I think, to another uh, take that people have when you talk about ultrasound money. And these are takes related to supply. The supply of ether uh, itself. So the first, the first take of these two is um, number five. ETH has an infinite supply, uh, and the take often goes: Ethereum supply it can go to infinity. The printers can keep printing because Ethereum has no tail issuance. So what do you, what do you make of this? Does does ether have infinite supply? Is that technically true, and is that also falsifiable? Right. So, um, no, it's not technically true. Uh, Ethereum does not have an infinite supply. Even if we were to wait a very, very long time, even though there is tail issuance, the supply would not go towards infinity. It is possible, well, pre-EIP-1559, pre yes, technically, it would have gone to infinity. But with the burn, we're actually in a position where there's going to be an equilibrium that forms at the supply level, where the burn and the issuance are going to exactly cancel each other. And one of the reasons why I have high confidence that there will be an equilibrium is because it's a little bit technical, but basically the issuance is sublinear in the supply. So with proof of work, you know, we had this constant issuance. So it doesn't matter, you know, how large the supply is, it's like a constant, constant issuance, for example, two ETH per block. Uh, on the other hand, the, the burn is linear to the total supply. And so it grows 
as the supply increases, because you can think of the burn as being a, a burn rate of the total economy. Let's say 1% of the total Ethereum supply is being burnt every single year. And so 1% of a supply of, of 1 million ETH is much, much lower, is 10 times lower than 1% of a 1 billion um, ETH, ETH supply. And so if the if the uh, supply were to grow to infinity, the burn would grow to, to infinity. But we know that the uh, the uh, the issuance is doesn't grow as fast. It's kind of this sublinear growth relative to 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 the burn. And for for proof of stake, uh, the the issuance is not linear. Is but it's actually um, you know the square root of the supply. So one grows linear, the other one grows by the square root. And then you can prove that if you were to to map out these two curves, square root and, and the line, you know, they would intersect and that would be the equilibrium. Now, one of the interesting kind of side notes here is that arguably, even before EIP 1559, Ethereum would still have a supply equilibrium. And the reason is that there is another mechanism that ETH gets burnt, which is the natural process of losing Ether. People just lose their coins. And so we could maybe estimate, let's say, 0.1% of all the ETH every year gets, gets, gets lost. And the reason is that, let's say, 1% of all people on Earth you know, die. And of these 1%, let's say 10% didn't set up proper fallback uh, for, 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 for their lost keys. And that's a similar dynamic. If we have a percentage that's being lost every single year, that is going to outweigh eventually um, the, 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 the sublinear nature of, of issuance. And this is actually an argument that was put forward by my Peter Todd, not that I, that I agree with, uh, often with Peter Todd, but he's, say, but he's basically saying that even if Bitcoin were to have tail issuance, that still leads to a cap supply. Uh, and so in a sense, it, it doesn't uh, go against the philosophy of, of, of Bitcoin being, a, being a, a hard money with a cap supply. I just want to clarify some notes on the, the proof of work versus proof of stake and, the, and the, the burn. And this is really, I think, why the Ethereum monetary policy feels so elegant to me, especially the combination of having this naturally asymptotic um, supply growth, because if it, that's what you were talking about with uh, the square root, right? As Because it's a square root function, as the number goes higher, it stops going higher so fast. So it slowly gets a slower decreasing rate of issuance. And so and then because that the proof of uh, because of the EIP 1559 burn is always a percentage, uh, there's the that's where you get that intersection point, right? And the cool thing about this is that these are two market derived algorithms that are finding each other. And this just feels so elegant to me versus some sort of like arbitrary top down two ether per block monetary supply schedule where we have EIP 1559, which is market discovered as the correct uh, uh, gas price for that particular moment because that's what the market decided. And then you have this uh, monetary policy, which is also a function of as issuance goes up or down as a function how much ETH stake there is. So we have these two things, two uh, mechanisms that are 
are, are two forces that interact with each other that are both market derived. And when we have like these market derived metrics, to me that just feels like the logical conclusion of monetary policy for some crypto economic model. Uh, that, that's, uh, that's how would I would summarize these things. What would you say about that, Justin? No, that, that, that's exactly right. Um, and so there is an equilibrium. We don't know exactly what it is because it depends on these two market forces, as you, as you said. Um, and if you want to visualize this, if you go to ultrasound.money, the website, um, you can play with these exact two market forces. There's two sliders. Um, so if you scroll down a little bit, one slider is going to be uh, around the issuance. So that's basically going to be how much ETH is taking. The lower the, the APR, the more ETH is taking. So here we have 30 million ETH. And then the other question is the burn rate. So historically, we've been burning at 2.2% a year, which is extremely high. But maybe that's too high because you know, most of the data was around you know, DeFi summer and the bull market. And so if we you know, adjust this down, for example, as you just did to 1.2% per year, um, then you can see the equilibrium would be at around uh, roughly 1.7 uh, million ETH. Um, so yeah, it's just these, these two market forces um, and the way to think of, of the issuance is to, to think of the, the, the cost of money, right? Because over the, the very long term in an eff efficient market, basically the, the returns for stakers will effectively be zero. And the reason is that there is a cost of placing that ETH as collateral and locking it up, which is the cost of money. And so you want to get compensated for that. And in an efficient market, kind of margins go to zero. And so you need to ask yourself, what is kind of the end game cost of money and you know maybe three percent is reasonable maybe four percent is reasonable i don't know and that will dictate how much ETH is taking uh, in the long term and then for the burn rate that's a bit harder to to try and estimate because the, the fee market is so volatile and is also going to depend on developments you know like scalability and and, and induced demand and thing, and competition and so here it's it's more of an art to try and and, and predict it but I think you know at least one percent per year seems uh, seems seems reasonable in terms of the the burn rate. By the way, I think this uh, supply projection is is recently uh, newer to ultrasound dot money. At least I I didn't see it a few weeks ago. And I just want to do a, a shout out to this website. It's called ultrasound dot money. If you want to understand Ethereum's monetary policy, its issuance schedule, its block space demand the way the algorithms work to set issuance, this is the website to go to. It's all very visual. The sliders that Justin mentioned, they slide up or down <laughs> so you can put your own projections in. And this to me is just the absolute best way to understand what's, what's, what's happening, what the dynamics are around issuance, around burn rate, uh, and you can model it out. It even has kind of a, a projection of the ETH supply moving forward. And uh, how, how, what are we at with total supply right now? Um, 120 and a half million? 120 million. So will this stay at 120 million? Will it go to 122 million? Will it drop down? You can project all of that here. Uh, so shout out to this website. It's absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. David, I think so you have the next concept, one. So there's this concept called the ultrasound barrier, which is basically what uh, average uh, base base fee price do we need in order to have deflation? Um, and so if you scroll up a little bit, um, 
there's this kind of interesting graph here with the base fees, which shows the ultrasound barrier at 14.9 gray, and every single point on the on the right here on the graph, every single point that is orange is above, and every single point that is blue is is below. And basically, you want to be looking at the area under the curve. Yes. You want to be taking the orange area and the blue area and comparing those. And here in the last hour, overwhelmingly, you know, we would have been in a deflationary mode. You know, maybe so the last hour was a ultrasound hour, if you will. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. I can't, I can't wait to look at this post-merge. It's going to be that much, that much better. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, Justin, let's go on to uh, take number six, which is uh, the ETH supply is unpredictable. As in, uh, there is no knowing the future supply of Ether, the asset, moving forward into the future. What would you say to this take? Right. So this take is actually technically true, because as you said, the ETH supply depends on these two market forces. One is, you know, what is the fair you know, cost of, of, of opportunity cost of, of money? And what is going to be the, the demand for block space and, 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 and the fees uh, paid for it? But it turns out, so this is often a take that's given by Bitcoiners, but it, it, it turns out that Bitcoin's supply is also unpredictable. Um, and the reason is that mining take, is also, take. <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's technically also uh, a true statement for Bitcoin. Um, and the reason is because there is a market, it's the hash rate market, and it, the hash rate can go up, it can go down, and that is going to affect the average block time and also affect the issuance and rate and also therefore affect the supply at any given point in time. And so there was this, this meme within the, 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 the Bitcoin, which is that every four years there's a halving, but that's actually not true. It's less than four years. It's more like three and a half years. Um, and so, you know, we should be having a, a, a happening in, in January uh, 2025, uh, I believe. But now it's if we were on the on the four year or the original four year schedule, but actually the next happening is now scheduled in 2023. And the reason is it has been advanced by so much is because the hash rate historically has gone up, meaning that the average block time is less than, than, than 10 minutes. And so in a way, Bitcoiners have been rugged because they've had to suffer <laughs> one year's worth of dilution prematurely uh, when you know, they were promised this, this, this four-year schedule. I think really the, the, the more you know, refined take, I guess, is that we want the supply to be fully programmatic, right? We want it to be like just code. Uh, and this is a property that Bitcoin has, and it's also a property that Ethereum has. Um, and I think maybe what, what Bitcoiners will say is that, yes, it's just code, but the code has changed over time. And this is true, right? We've, we've gone from 5 ETH to 3 ETH per block to 2 ETH per block. And now we're basically going to 0 ETH per block with proof of work. And then proof of stake is on the order of 0 0.25 uh, ETH per block. And you can also think of EIP-1559 as, you know, again, being kind of this monetary policy uh, intervention by ultimately uh, humans. But like the, I think one of the responses here is that um, the social layer is in, is in control of these changes. And the social layer will only do changes that are beneficial to itself. And these are changes that 
you know, improve the monetary properties. And so we've always had this continual incremental improvement to the uh, to the properties of 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 of, of Yifa, the, the asset. And it's possible that there will be future improvements beyond what we have, which is already, you know, in, in a way, sci-fi economics, at least relative to Bitcoin. And so one one of the possibilities, for example, would be to have a cap on the a number of active validators. So there's like good security reasons to have a cap on the total number of active validators because every individual validator has some overhead computationally on the beacon chain. And so if we want the beacon chain uh, to, you know, to run on Raspberry Pis, there shouldn't be millions and millions of validators because that would be too much overhead. And by putting a cap, not only are we improving the security of the beacon chain, but we're also improving the issuance because now instead of the maximum issuance being you know the square root of the total supply it would actually be constant it would be like proof of work there would be like a maximum issuance per block that could ever be be be, uh, be issued and that would you know further be an improvement over the current monetary policy i don't know what why i've never thought about putting it in these terms but um what you just said just kind of uh triggered this thought in my mind which is um after the merge, Ethereum switches its monetary policy from the social layer purely to code in the same way that Bitcoin's monetary policy has been algorithmic driven and code driven from the very beginning. And I do think at the heart, that is what crypto sound money advocates actually want. They don't want predictability necessarily. They want unbiasability. They they don't want it to be biased arbitrarily by humans. They want the code and the algorithms to decide. And that indeed is what's happening post-merge. Ethereum switches its monetary policy purely to the robots. That the code is in charge now. Uh right. but that's a great point about unpredictability. Let's go to um the just next one 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 just go just ahead, to yeah. reiterate your point around uh, so you're right there pre-merge there's these numbers that need to be picked you know five three two and you know we can bike share then we can argue and it's kind of not clean so you're right we're removing these numbers and we're replacing them by by pure auctions and and and, and markets the other thing that i want to highlight from an improvement potential improvement to monetary policy is this idea of mev burn so right now we're only burning the base fee but it turns out that there is this you know, a uh, crypto economic gadget called MEV smoothing, whereby the, the blockchain itself is aware of how much MEV is being extracted in the blocks and it spreads the MEV equally across all the participants. And this awareness creates an MEV oracle that we can indirectly use to burn the MEV. And we could actually be in a position where the issuance is negative meaning that you need to pay ETH to become a validator. And the reason that you pay ETH to become a validator is because you know that you're going to be able to receive the MEV income, which is going to be greater than what you paid for this validator slot. And so, you know, right now, the, the issuance is, you know, on the order of 0.5% uh, per year. But with MEV burn, it could actually be, be negative. Um, and so that's, you know, taking to the extreme this idea 
that um, you know we 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 shouldn't be giving the the, the transaction fees and and use that to pay for security because that's wasteful. Instead, <clears throat> all the transaction fees should should go to Ether the asset and accrue there to make Ether a, a, a better asset because the, the the validators are already sufficiently compensated to guarantee that Ethereum as as a protocol is secure enough. And the other thing that I mentioned in the ultrasound money episode is that there's multiple grades of 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 uh, rewards for validators. There's the you know super consistent low volatility stuff which you want to rely upon, and there's the really high volatility fees. And so in a in a in a way, um, by smoothing things out and removing this MEV component, which is extremely volatile, uh, we're we're making the process um, of of being a validator you know, more, more, more stable and therefore, you know, in a way making it more secure as well. Well, speaking of validators, that gets us to, I think the, uh, the seventh bad take on our list or maybe misconception. And that is the statement that the stakers run Ethereum. They are the rulers. Welcome. Your new overlords are stakers. They're validators. Uh, the idea is that Ethereum stakers control Ethereum and they can actually change the rules of consensus. What do you think about this? Right. So this is one of the the really hard to 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 fight <laughs> bad takes. Um, but and the the reason is that there's a lack of appreciation for two layers in the consensus stack. Right. There's what I call the machine consensus layer, which is which is run by by machines and software and and code. It operates on the order of seconds. Um, and there's the, the the social layer, which is run by humans. And ultimately, the social layer has precedence over the machine layer. It's the social layer that sets the rules because it decides what is you know a valid transaction. So the the machine consensus has to play within those rules and can't just create invalid transactions out of thin air. So, for example, even if the the uh, Ethereum as a blockchain was 51% attacked, the attacker could not just create transactions that paid itself millions and millions of ETH, right? Because one of the rules that has been set in the social layer and is enforced uh, by, 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 by running uh, nodes uh, with, with these rules is that, you know, transactions can't just create ETH out of thin air. Um, and so there's this conflation basically of two things. One is consensus and the other one is governance. Governance is the, the idea of making upgrades to consensus. Uh, and governance is in the hands of the social layer, whereas the day-to-day -day consensus is in the hands of, of the machine layer, which is just a, a service provider, right? They're just servants ultimately to the network. If they don't obey by the rules, uh, they will they will get penalized. Now there is this this one exception, right, which we discussed in the censorship resistance, is that the validators, if they get fifty one percent attacked, they do have the power to temporarily censor transactions. And the reason why I say temporarily is because, as we discussed, there's these two types of censorship. There's the weak censorship, which by definition is temporary, and then there's the strong censorship where the transactions don't make it on chain forever but even in that strong censorship scenario it's still temporary because 
a few months later, when the social layer kicks in, it will boot out the attacker um, and re-enshrine and, and uh, the, 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 the rules that have been set at the social layer, which is that there, there shouldn't be censorship uh, and, 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 and therefore restore the system. Um, and so if, if you are going to exploit this one loophole, uh, which is that you can censor if you do 51% of validators, that's going to be a one-time attack, it's going to be extremely expensive. Um, and most likely you won't do it in the first place because the crypto economic incentives, the equilibrium are not in your favor. I think, Justin, this argument really comes from the Bitcoiner camp, and they're really using proof of work as a reference point to make this argument, where there's no like governance button built into an ASIC unit. Uh, and so, like therefore, of course, proof of work systems don't have governance, but proof of stake systems, they totally do, obviously, because it's, it's the capital that governs over the system. Where, when people make this argument that proof of work doesn't have governance and proof of stake is chain, uh, is on-chain governance, wh wh where's the mistake that, that, wh where's the mistake coming from here on this one? Right, so proof of work 100% has governance. It 100% has a social layer. You know, even if Bitcoiners try to minimize it, it does have one. The social layer of, of Bitcoin is, you know, we're going to try and minimize it and try and, and, and ignore it to the maximum possible extent, but it's it's still there. And, you know, it rears its head every once in a while because there have been upgrades to the rules of consensus, uh, you know, over time, every two years or, or, or so, the Bitcoin make, make, makes, makes an upgrade. And that is fundamentally something that comes from the social layer. And so what happens is that humans will go upgrade their, 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 their nodes and they're now running you know, a, a different version uh, of, of Ethereum. If, you know, 51% of the hash rate were to just go off in their own direction, well, then they just created a new fork. And, you know, this is what happened with Bitcoin Cash, for example. It just went on in its own direction and, um, you know, ultimately did, did not have uh, legitimacy and would not have had legitimacy even if more than 50% of the hash rate wanted to go in that direction. And actually, that's something that Bitcoiners are very proud of, right? There's this, um, you know, story which is retold and retold over and over again, which is that all the big players, Coinbase and like all the miners and, you know, all the big industry wanted Bitcoin Cash, but ultimately we won because we were stronger. Well, yes, that's exactly right. That's a very good point. Like ultimately, the social layer won out over the consensus participants because the consensus participants are subjugate, not in power relative to the social layer. Could, could we replay that same story with ETH stake? Could 51% of staked ETH go off if, on its own direction? And then the Ethereum communities like, oh, that's the direction of OFAC compliance. We don't want to go that direction. Is it a one-to-one -one comparison on these two stories? 100%, yes. So you can abstract away the notion of a consensus participant, whether it's a proof of work consensus participant as a miner or as a, as a validator and, and proof of stake is the, the exact same thing. Um, and, you know, the, the nice thing is that anyone can fork off at any time. You just need one consensus participant in the world to go do that. Um, and, you know, you could have like a, a very, you know, um, a, a quiet chain with just one participant if, 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 if they want to. But really, the value of these forks only comes when you have, you know, rough consensus, when you have a significant 
minority at the minimum wanting to go in, in, in such a direction. So that was bad take number seven. We have a few, definitely a handful of more takes in the coming up next. We have uh, rich get richer. We have proof of stake is bad for distribution. Uh, we have deflation bad and it's a security. Uh, and a few others as well. Uh, we'll talk about scalability and the burn rate and a few other hot, bad takes on Ether. But first, we're going to talk to some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. And we are back with our 15 bad takes about ETH. We are halfway through. So we're going to lead into this very common one that I've hear, heard echoed all the time. It's about proof of stake. And it's that in a proof of stake system, the rich get richer. It's a rich get richer consensus mechanism. Justin, what would you say to this take? Right. So my take is that the rich stay equally rich and the, the poor stay equally poor. Um, like proof of stake is one of the fairest consensus mechanisms that you, you could come up with. And the reason is that it's the same APR for every single consensus participant, no matter how large you are. If you're staking one ETH or a million ETH, you get the exact same APR. And the barrier to entry to becoming a consensus participant is is very very low, at least compared to proof of work. With proof of work, you know you need to invest millions of dollars, you know, to have a remotely competitive uh, system. With proof of stake, with tens of thousands of dollars, and soon with you know with things like Rocket Pool and Lido, you know, even just one ETH or even less than an ETH is is okay to be benefiting uh, from from these rewards. The other thing I'll say about proof of stake is that it uh, you know it doesn't suffer from these um economies of scale that proof of work um has and so in that sense it's much fairer than 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 proof of work like um if you're extreme if you're extremely large you'll be able to get you know better deals on 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 your hardware for example um and actually if you're so large that you can go manufacture your own hardware then you get an even better deal because you don't even have to pay the 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 bitmain kind of uh profit margin um and you know this is a a classic thing you know with with you know in hardware like the bigger you are the 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 the, the more profitable you are and and like part of the reason is that there's a a large what's called NRE um which is um this upfront engineering cost uh, that, you, you, that you have to pay even to produce one single ASIC, you have to pay, you know, tens of millions of dollars. And so the more ASICs you have, the more you can amortize that. Um, and so, yeah, like it's it not only is it is it is it, is it wrong because the, the rich are not getting richer compared to, to, to the rest, but it's kind of a, a, an especially bad take if it comes from Bitcoiners. Uh, because Bitcoin is indeed the rich get richer. Like the richer you are, the better economies of scale you have, the the larger the APR. And so over time, as a miner, you become larger and larger. And we're actually seeing this in real time play out right now in the Bitcoin mining world with acquisitions. The Bitcoin miners are in a really tough spot now. And the reason is that the Bitcoin price is not doing so well. The The, the hash rate is relatively high. The the energy prices are very, very high. So electricity prices are very, very high. And so a, a bunch of miners are just, you know, not doing so well financially. And some of them are just going out of business. And so the, the, the best move is to, to, to get acquired. And it turns out that it's the larger fish kind of acquiring the smaller fish and getting even larger. And so that leads to, to, to centralization. And so this is, this is something that proof of stake doesn't have. Like 
it kind of preserves the level of centralization that we that we already have. And if you zoom out and you think of you know wealth around the world, um, you know it's not perfectly distributed for sure, but it's, it's it is pretty damn uh, distributed. Okay, so now we're getting to uh, number nine on the bad takes list uh, to defang. Um, and at this point, I think maybe uh, the bad take machine is going, okay, Justin, you got us. Ultrasound money, ETH as money is really good. But you know what? Deflation is actually bad. It's bad for the Ethereum economy. And the idea is here that ETH cannot be a good money because deflation incentivizes hoarding. And that ultimately will start to jeopardize the Ethereum economy. So what about the idea that, okay, you're deflationary ultrasound money, but hold on, deflation is bad for the Ethereum economy long-term. Right, so that's an extremely prevalent take, even within Ethereum circles. And I think it's because it's like the, the traditional economist thinking, right, that, that deflation is bad. Now, the thing is that, uh, I think it's important to distinguish two types of money, and I'll call them money and currency. So there's non-transactional money and there's transactional money. And actually the non-transactional one is what I'll call collateral money. And the transactional one is what I'll call, you know, debt, debt money. And it turns out that there's these, these two sides to the coin, right? When you want to have debt money, you know, for example, fiat, you need to have some sort of collateral backing it. So for example, you know, every time you take out a mortgage and you put, put your house as, 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 as collateral, then you have collateral money, quote, money is the, the, the house, and then you have the, 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 the debt money. Now you want, it is true that you want your debt money to be inflationary, right? You want its value to go down over time. And the reason is because otherwise, you know, it, over time, it would be harder and harder to pay off your your your, your debts, uh, and you you know that there'd, there'd be um, there'd be lots of, of defaults in in the system. But on the other hand, when you focus on the collateral side of things, then you actually want your collateral to grow over time, because that reduces the the the, the probability that you'll get liquidated. So if you want to have like robust systems uh, that 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 can you know, that are less subject to kind of be becoming more and more systemically risky as time goes on, you know, and potentially having a massive crash, you kind of want your debt money to reduce in value over time so that people can pay back their loans and you want the collateral money to grow and grow uh, over time. And so just like, you know, we have like, you can think of gold as being this collateral money and fiat as being this, 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 this debt money, um, Ether is actually optimized to be collateral money, in my opinion. So right now, how is it used as collateral? Well, it's used as collateral in the context of staking, right? There's about, you know, I forget exactly the percentage, but something like 12% of all ETH, which is currently being staked. Um, Ether is also being used as collateral in the context of, of DeFi. Um, and uh, and in, in both of these cases, what, what does it mean to be a, a collateral? It means basically to be backing some sort of, of liability. And so Ether, the asset is kind of this, 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 this magical thing where you can create liabilities um, and, and, and start, and start uh, backing them. And so in the context of DeFi, like the liability is that the, the, the price 
uh, action goes against your your, your, your favor. You, know, you want leverage long with your ETH, price goes in the wrong direction, you get liquidated. In the case of staking, is this idea that you know, if you start misbehaving, you start uh, accruing penalties. And I kind of also think as one third use case of Ether being collateral money is just simply being a, a savings mechanism, a store of value. And, the, and you can kind of think as the liability there as being your future spending, right? You know, it could be you know, for education or for housing or for medical bills or whatever. Like it, it's there to back a, a, a liability, which is your, 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 your future spending. And like the, the amazing thing about, about Ethereum is that it's, it's a system which is extremely friendly and extremely welcoming of these two types of money, both the ultra low velocity non-transactional money, which Ether is optimized for, and for the high velocity transactional uh, money. And um, the, the, the reason why it's, it's friendly to both is that when you look at the transactional money, this is what generates cash flows, right? This is what generates income. And so you can kind of think of the really high velocity liquid portion as being like a mini company, like a mini tech company, basically. And you can start applying, um, you know, valuations that look at cash flows and look at PE ratios and things like that. And this kind of mental separation of these these two types of monies is, in my opinion, a very good model for monetary premium. And the reason is that we can try and compare it with gold. Gold has roughly 10% of its supply, let's say, that is actively being used and has cash flows through its use as an industrial metal, right? Every single iPhone, every single piece of electronics uses gold. And if you look at these cash flows, you might say that gold should be valued at $1 trillion. But it's only the 10% of gold that is actively you know, subject to these cash flows that's, that should be valued at $1 trillion. But if you look at the whole market cap and you add in the other $90 million, then now suddenly you get the, you know, the whole $10 trillion um, uh, market cap of, of gold, which is to, to to, to, to a large extent, just monetary premium. And I think the same thing will happen with Ether, the asset. I think over the long term, the vast majority of ETH will be non-transactional. It will be just sitting there. Maybe let's say 80% of all the Ether will be used as collateral in context of DeFi, staking, and as a store of value. And only 20% uh, will, will be liquid and subject to, to, to these cash flows. And so if we take this to be, you know, uh, the, the case and then then we should expect a monetary premium of of, of 5x right over the cash flow valuation um, and right now you know we're in a position where maybe only 20 percent of all the ETH is 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 is, is locked up and so the, the monetary premium is actually negligible it's only when it becomes very very high then it that that it starts accruing monetary premium Ryan you're muted oh. Sorry, I was saying that that's very fascinating. I really like this kind of, um, I guess, lens of collateral money versus um, debt money, right? And I guess applying the you know a traditional lens of money that that we've seen before, store of value, medium of exchange, unit of account. I think what you're saying is the collateral money is better on the store of value side of things 
the higher velocity debt-based money is better on kind of the the medium of exchange side of things. I guess both could serve a purpose as the at the as the unit of account, but maybe uh, the the high velocity money is kind of a better unit of account. But like we see this in play right now, whereas for an asset like a stablecoin like a Dai, right, that is kind of a unit of account, medium of exchange. What is it backed by? USDC, yes, but also a vast amount of ETH as collateral backing it. So when you're talking about uh, like deflation bad, deflation only bad for credit money, only bad for um, the unit, the medium of exchange type money, the high velocity money is definitely a very good thing for the store of value type of money. And um, I think that distinction in the, in the fiat age has been somewhat blurred, but I think will become more clear in the crypto age. Um, David, I think you have the next take. Yeah. Yeah, next take that we want to cover, Justin, is a higher ETH price means higher fees. And to elaborate, it's that uh, you know high ETH prices, high ether prices, especially in bull markets, lead to high transaction fees, making Ethereum unusable. What would you say to this take? Right. Um, so, in my opinion, it's just you know largely wrong, um, and it like the <laughs> the thinking is that people have to pay transaction fees in ETH. And so if the price of ETH goes up, then it means that my transaction fees must go up. Um, but actually, there's like two very distinct markets here going on. There's the ETH market, which is denominated in US dollars per ETH. Uh, and then there's the gas market, which is you know de denominated in US dollars per, per, per gas, uh, per, per unit of gas. Uh, and and in theory, like these these two things, like are are, are totally separate. There's the different markets, and so we can be in a position, you know, hypothetically, where one ETH is a million bucks, but the the the, the gas price is 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 is, is, ex is extremely low. Um, sorry, the, the 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 gas market is denominated in ETH per, per gas. So basically, you could be paying like. 0.0001 Gwei, let's say, and still have um, you know an extremely high ETH price. And actually, this is what I expect will happen over time. This, I think, is the the, the reasonable end game: is that the the price of ETH is very very high, let's say a million dollars, and the the gas price is extremely extremely low. And when you take these two things in in, in combination, you know you're you you you're in, you're in a position where you have very very low fees but potentially lots and lots of transactions and so if you if you bring in scalability to the mix what i expect will happen is that we're going to have millions and millions of transactions each t paying a tiny tiny fee let's say one, one one cent and that you know being kind of largely orthogonal i guess to the to to, to the price of eth now one thing that i that i'll i'll say is that when we look at the gas markets, there's, there's two components. There's the supply and demand. Now, the price of ETH going up definitely doesn't apply, doesn't reflect, uh, doesn't reflect on, on 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 supply. But what tends to happen is that if the price of ETH goes up, it increases demand for the 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 the, the, the block space. And one of the reasons is because of volatility. Right. If price goes up, that means that there's been a change in price, which means that there's been some amount of volatility. And every time there's volatility, there's arbitrage opportunities and things like that. But the other aspect is that as the price of ETH goes up, Ethereum becomes more valuable. 
uh, more useful as, as a settlement layer. And the reason is because it has more economic security and it has more uh, economic bandwidth. And so it can do more stuff and it has larger and larger network effects. And so it's natural that there is more demand uh, for it. And so one of the things that we that we have observed is that there is this kind of uh, this, this, this correlation with with bear and bull markets. When when we're in the in in, in the bull market, there's, there's there's a lot of activity. People are wanting to pay, uh, you know, for, for this block space at, at a premium. When we're in the bear market, there's less there's less activity. Um, but if you if you think in terms of long term fundamentals, nothing prevents you know having a one million dollar ETH with one cent transactions. $1 million ETH with one cent transaction. That sounds kind of good right now. Sounds like, like a good uh, day. <laughs> let's, let's go to number 11. This has been maybe a, a criticism I've, I've seen somewhat recently. Again, uh, it has raised its head at certain times, more recently by, I think, Michael Saylor. But uh, ETH cannot be a good money because it's a security. The ETH take being Ether is a security. Therefore, it cannot be good money. What, what do you say to that? Right. Um, so, my understanding of securities is that you know it's on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis, and you know there's roughly 200 jurisdictions in the world, and to my knowledge, there's not a single jurisdiction in the world that has declared Eve to be a security. So, in a way, this should be a falsifiable claim. You know, I should be able to go to every single country and 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 tell you, hey, you know, it's, it hasn't been declared a security in that country. Therefore, it's not it's not a, a security. Um, but I think what what Bitcoiners have, have, have and critics have been doing is is basically saying that hey, um, there hasn't been a clear claim that it's not a security, and so it, 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 I guess it could be a security. Um, and often, you know, when they when they think when they say if a security, they actually mean if is a security in in the United States. Like specifically, okay. So let's 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 look at the United States. Now I'm I'm you know just an observer of, of I'm not even based in the U.S. You know I have relatively little uh, you know knowledge of of, of 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 U.S. securities. But my understanding is that the SEC has actually explicitly come forward you know a few years ago and kind of had this informal guidance that it it's not a security. Like we we had a representative of this the SEC go ahead and and. And, and and do that um and then my other understanding but again i i you know i'm definitely not an authority on this is that there's a a statute of limitations specifically in the us of of five years and and it's been you know close to eight years uh since we've had uh if we had i think it's seven so, years but you're seven years, seven years okay but your, but your point still stands the point still stands it's been more than seven years since you know ifa the asset has been created uh, and so, you know, it, it, in, in, in the US specifically, it seems that it's not a security, but of course it could be declared a security in, in, in other jurisdictions. Now, what if, let's say, you know, Bitcoiners turn out to be right, like some jurisdiction does declare it uh, a, a security? Well, you know, Ethereum in a way doesn't care, right? <laughs> it, it, <laughs> like the, the Ethereum system will just keep on running. And, you know, what will have to happen is that exchanges within this jurisdiction will you know will either have to stop trading um the ether the asset because they're they're, they're not registered 
uh, as, as a securities exchange. But, you know, there's, there's many easy ways now to go to go by Ether. Like one of the ways, for example, is you buy wrapped Bitcoin, you go on Uniswap and you convert that wrapped Bitcoin to ETH. And so if Bitcoin is not a security, then you, you, it's still you know, easy to go, to, to, to go by ETH. Um, and if one specific jurisdiction were to go ahead and declare ETH a security, they're putting themselves at a massive disadvantage. Because remember, like the, the, the grand vision here is to become the settlement layer for the internet of value and basically for ETH to be the, the collateral money for the whole internet. And like they, they want to miss out on this opportunity. Well, you know, that would be to their loss, obviously. The collateral money for the whole internet only traded from nine to five on the S&P, like on the NASDAQ or something like this, right? Nothing. It does not make sense. I don't, I opt out of that future. Uh, Justin, thank you so much for, for going that one. Th this one, uh, we, we have because uh, we have this listed in like the bad takes about ETH. Uh, but this one, I'm actually really curious for myself because uh, I, I'm curious to hear the answer. This is a point that Jordy made in our bear versus bull about the merge argument. And it's that the scalability of Ethereum with EIP 4844 and all just generally pushing transactions to layer twos reduces the ETH burn. So all these people who are just like super stoked with how much ether that we're burning, how can we also be like excited about the ETH burn yet also excited about Ethereum scaling at the same time? So the take here is that Ethereum scalability reduces ether burn. Uh, why, why is this a bad take? I'd actually, I need to know this for my own personal knowledge. Yeah, sure. So this is, this is a very common take, uh, even within uh, Ethereum land. Um, and basically, it, it, it's, it's because, you know, the, the very naive thinking, which I guess Jordi is not thinking, but I'll just put it forward anyway, is that if we have scalability, then transaction fees, the per transaction fee will go down, and therefore, the, the total burn will go down. But what it doesn't take into account is the fact that there's going to be more transactions. So even though every individual transaction is going to be paying less, because there's more transactions, um, then that there's going to be some counterbalancing going on. And so the real question is, you know, there's this very subtle market dynamics around, um, you know, on scalability on the on the one hand, and you know, how much people are willing to pay given this total amount of, of scalability. And there's several scenarios. There's actually, you know, two, at least two scenarios. Scenario number one is that if, let's say, we scalability um, increases by 10x, the question is, will the per transaction fee be uh, less or more than 10 times less? Because if it's less, then yes, I agree, the fee burn would be less. But if it's more, then actually it would be more. So there is a scenario where, for example, we scale by 10x, but the per transaction fee only goes down by 5x. And in that scenario, the fee burn actually, the, the total burn goes up by a factor of two. Now, there's a couple of things that we can say just, um, you know, abstractly, um, which is that there's, 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 there's two two things that we can expect. The first one is this idea of a supply shock, which is that if we were to suddenly scale dramatically, um, then uh, there wouldn't be an immediate response. There's kind of this latency for the, for the response in, in, in the very, very short term. And so what would happen is that the per transaction fee would go down and there wouldn't be a counterbalancing uh, in, 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 in terms of demand for, for lots of transactions. And so the total uh, burn would, would go down. 
But there's this other kind of very interesting uh, economic effect, which is this idea of induced demand, which is that the more you improve the system, the more people uh, want to use it. And this is something that we observe with, 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 with traffic, um, which is that, um, you know, if you have, let's say, a motorway with, with two lanes, it's always full of traffic. Well, the, the city's council is going to say, OK, let's build a third lane. And then two months later, this third lane is like completely swamped. And you can ask yourself, why, why does that happen? Why have you not solved traffic? And the reason is that because you've added this first this third lane, you know, people who used to take the train might start driving, entrepreneurs who's, who, you know, see, oh, well, there's now more flow in this city. I'm going to set up a petrol station. I'm going to set up a restaurant. And now more people are interested to go there just because there's a restaurant. Um, and this is the same thing is going to happen with Ethereum. Like the more trans activity there is, the more, you know, attractive Ethereum itself uh, becomes. And so what we should be really expecting when there's a scalability increase is like a dip, but then a, a counterbalancing increase uh, for the induced demand. And then the real question is, where do we end up? Do we end up over or, or under? And here we need to go back to historical data. Uh, it turns out that Ethereum has scaled, and in my opinion, it scaled uh, roughly 50x since Genesis. Wow. So let me try, let me try and explain that. So uh, at Genesis, there was a 3 million gas uh, limit. And now we have a 15 million gas target. So that's already a, a 5x increase in scalability. The other 10x in scalability uh, comes from the improvement uh, that um, uh, developers have had when, when we're writing gas efficient code, right? Seven years ago, we would write extremely gas inefficient code and we didn't have the tools to optimize this. And now, you know, seven years later, we're basically doing you know uh, what's called gas golfing where like if you can reduce the consumption by one gas you know you like you get a badge of honor um <laughs> and you you know you're, you you get uh, social credit within your, your peers as, as as developers and we've been able to squeeze everything out and if you look for example at uniswap v2 versus uniswap v3 that's you know roughly an order of magnitude improvement in terms of of, of gas efficiency per unit Per, per, per amount of volume uh, traded. And so if you compound this 10x improvement in writing better and more gas efficient contracts with 5x increase in gas limit, you get roughly this 50x. And then you can look back with, on, on, the, on all the data that we've had, has the total burn increased or decreased despite the scalability? And it's gone nothing but up and it's gone up extremely dramatically. It's gone up 10x every single year for the last seven years yeah. <laughs> so it was like um something like ten dollars per day seven years ago and then a hundred dollars per day a thousand dollars ten thousand a hundred thousand and now we're at a point where we're doing ten million dollars per day of of, of of transaction fees and so i think there is uh you know uh, a, a possibility that this this trend will 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 continue and that you know, we're at the very, very early days of, of uh, Ethereum adoption, and there's a lot, a lot of network effects that still have to kick in, and therefore a lot of indu induced demand that still has to, to, to kick in. And if I were to kind of zoom out as a heuristic, um, you know, I, I, I think it's fair to say that as Ethereum provides more and more economic activity to the world, you know, the total amount of value that it can extract should, should grow, right? 
there is this technological aspect, um, but you know, as as a rough heuristic, that doesn't seem unreasonable to me. All right, for folks that have gotten with uh, gone uh, with us all the way to number thirteen here, what you're describing maybe to some people sounds a little bit like a tech stock, Justin. And so, what about this take that? Uh, the ETH market cap is just a reflection of Ethereum's performance, and it looks kind of like a tech stock. Its outlook as a tech company um, is ETH a tech stock. What do you think of this take? Right. So I think it's it, it's partially true and partially false. Right. I think as as discussed, if you focus on the 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 portion of the ETH supply which has to deal with cash flows, um, you know specifically the liquid portion of ETH that generates uh, fees and and is subject to, to 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 issuance. Then I think yes, it makes sense to look at this small portion um, as as as, uh, as a tech stock. And actually, going back to this website ultrasound.money, there is precisely this. There is a tech stock model price model for for EFD asset, and so you can compare P ratios with companies like Google and and Apple uh, and Amazon and and, and Disney, etc. And so if we, if you, yeah, scroll down a little bit, there we go. Monetary premium, you had it. Um, so right now, Ethereum has a P ratio of thirty-two point seven. You know, with assuming zero monetary premium. You know, which is somewhere between Google and Apple. And so maybe that's, maybe that's reasonable. Even though I'd argue that Ethereum has a huge amount of growth potential. Uh, you know, at least compared to very established, uh, you know, companies like Google and Apple. And so really. Maybe the PE ratio should be closer to 100 uh, than 30, but let's, let's just keep it. Well, we can keep it at 30 or put it at 100, whatever works. Uh, but, but you know, the, the the important thing, I guess, is that this PE ratio model should only affect the the liquid supply, which right now is about 80% of all ETH. And so, you know, there should be a, a tiny monetary premium. Let's say maybe 25%, 1.25. Uh, that, 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 that should be added. But really, the, one of the bull cases for ETH is that over time, the vast majority of Ether, let's say 80%, 90%, maybe 95%, is used as collateral, always lost. And so the, 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 the liquid supply is, 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 is only 5%. And, 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 and that would basically give us a multiplier, monetary premium multiplier over the base, you know, valuation as a tech stock. And by the way, this is the only way that we can get to the trillions and trillions of dollars of economic security and bandwidth that, that, that we need. Like even the largest companies in the world, you know, like Apple, there's like low digits, trillions of dollars. And if you look at, at, at decentralized stablecoins, right now we're in a position where we have these growing pains, right, where we the, the best stablecoin that we have on Ethereum is basically centralized stablecoins like USDC and USDT. And this is not going to be the end game. The end game is fully decentralized stablecoins, but these need to be collateralized by some form of, of pristine collateral. Um, and so because stablecoins are over collateralized, we know from Luna and Terra that, that non-fully <laughs> uh, collateralized stablecoins don't work. So let's take the assumption that they have to be over collateralized. Then if we're going to need tens of trillions of, of decentralized stablecoins, we need tens of trillions of dollars of uh, collateral money as well. Let's get in here to some of our last few bad takes that we want to, want to cover. And, and that is that Ethereum 
always just changes. The narrative around Ethereum keeps on changing. First we had ICOs, uh, before that we had the world computer to start, then there was DeFi, now there's NFTs. Ethereum's, the narrative always changes. The story that's being told is always something new. What would you say to this? Right, so I, I agree that the, the narrative has changed and I think it's, it's largely because Ethereum has been you know, misunderst misunderstood um, and it's been conflated with, you know, what is what it ultimately is it, it very good at, which is being a settlement layer for the internet value and the applications that are built uh, built on top. Um, and so, you know, these 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 narratives, as I said earlier in the podcast, like like uh, like DeFi and ICOs and, and and DAOs, these are emergent stories that have happened on top of of, of Ethereum, and just like the internet had all sorts of emergent stories, right? It had social media and then it had, you know, um, chat applications and, and Wikipedia and email and, and, and all sorts of, of, of other stuff, you know, you know, image sharing and video sharing and, and whatnot. Um, we're gonna see a richness. And so if, if you continue confusing, um, you know, Ethereum, the settlement layer with the applications built on top of it, you're in for even more confusion, right? Because we're going to see an explosion of, of, of new narratives at the, at the application layer. Um, and I think there's also been kind of this, this technological kind of mindset, you know, for example, the, the, the world computer. And now one of the new narratives is that, you know, we're just like a, a data availability layer, for example, for rollups. Um, I think this 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 technological take is 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 a bit too narrow for 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 a couple of reasons. Like one is that sometimes it focuses on just one component, right? Just the data availability or, or just the consensus. Where actually, really, Ethereum is providing a bundle of services. And I think for me, like the the four big components are consensus, right? We have huge amounts of economic security uh, and a consensus which is efficient, economically efficient, with low issuance. We want to have the data availability, which is critical indeed for rollups. We want to have just enough execution to be able to settle these rollups. And we want to have ultrasound money, Ether the asset, which is one of the key building blocks that's going to be used uh, in, 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 the, in the context of, of applications built on top. And so I'm, I'm not a fan of pushing for looking under the bonnet and looking at the components and saying, Ethereum is this technical thing. No, like when we focus on, on the, the, the wrapped, the, the, you know, the, the whole uh, holistic uh, system and we include a bit of, of mission, right? Ethereum's mission is to become a settlement layer for the internet value. Then I think that becomes a very, very simple narrative, which is extremely generic and encompassing and, 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 and and hopefully one, one that will become stronger and stronger over time. Like you can think of the world computer as being a more awkward way of saying settlement layer for the internet of value. And I think it's possible that, you know, looking back in, in, in five or 10 years, settlement layer for the internet of value is like a little too awkward, right? It's like eight words and it's a bit wordy, but I'm sure someone, you know, on Bankless will find something uh, you know, really snappy and, and <laughs> to say.
We definitely used to use some uh, cringe words for the internet in the in the early, you know, like the 1990s, right? Like cyberspace, for, Information for super highway. Yeah, the, these terms have uh, gone out of vogue, certainly. But let's, uh, let's conclude with the 15th. And thank you, Justin, for hanging with us so long. So this is the last and final take. For people who've made it this far around these bad takes on ultrasound money and, and you're refuting them, uh, maybe they still don't resonate with ETH as ultrasound money. It's a cringe meme, they might say. The whole ultrasound money thing, you just stole that from Bitcoin. It sounds super cringy. You can't talk to normal people and talk about Ether as an ultrasound money. They won't get it. What do you say it to that critique? think of pregnancy, you know. <laughs> yeah, ultrasounds. <laughs> okay, so there's two aspects to the question. One is the stolen aspect and the other one is the, the cringe one. Now, I think both are technically true, but I think both are terrible takes. So let's take them one by one. The stolen one is especially ironic coming from Bitcoiners. And the reason is they stole the sound money meme from, you know, gold bugs, basically. From, <laughs> <laughs> and they, they have zero innovation. They literally copied it verbatim and said, this is my meme now, when actually, you know, it came centuries earlier. Um, and so, yeah, it's quite ironic for them to say we've stolen it, but also we haven't stolen it in a way we, it's a derivative, it's an improvement. Um, and the way that I, you know, think of memes, which is kind of interesting is uh, like, it's a bit like, like viruses, right? There's, there's these pieces of information, they're not genetic, they're kind of uh, cultural pieces of information that mutate uh, over time. And here it's, I, in my opinion, is kind of a, a superior and stronger, you know, uh, organism, mimetic organism that's being created and one which uh, you know might 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 spread uh, you know faster and stronger across the world than 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 sound money did. Like sound money took you know many many decades, if not centuries, to to spread to to, to the whole world. So that's kind of the the stolen aspect. In terms of the the cringe aspect, well, guess what? Like sound money when it was created was really really cringe, and the reason is <laughs> you need to go back to. Uh, like where the, the word sound money come from. It came from this idea that if you had a gold coin, it made a certain noise. Um, it's like this, you know, you could have this ping test where like, ding. It was a test to see and if it was pure. Exactly. Like, the, yes. That is um, pretty cringe. <laughs> and like, what if the test involved like smelling it? Would you have called it like smell money or like taste <laughs> money or like, like sound money just sound like just cringe, but people have forgotten like this original meaning of, 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 of sound. And if you tell me sound money, I'm, I don't think ding, 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 like la la la, like sound money. <laughs> uh, in, instead, I'm like, I have this very serious, you know, uh, Austrian textbook, musty smelling room kind of feel to it. Exactly. Um, and I think it, 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 it's possible that uh, something similar will, will, will happen with, with, with ultrasound money. That's great. Justin, you've been very generous with your time. Thanks for going through 15 bad takes on ETH and uh, for, for clarifying them. I guess, Justin, we are a bet about to, as long as the merge goes successfully in the next couple of days, in the next 48 hours. 33 hours, yeah. 33 hours. Okay, I'm counting. Uh, we will be entering the ultrasound uh, money phase. So we're glad you could share some of these final, final pre-merge moments with us. And we appreciate your time. Thanks for having me again.
Bankless listeners, of course, risks and disclaimers. Got to mention that ETH is risky. So is all of crypto. So is DeFi. You could definitely lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.